Thank you for joining Pilgrim's Progress today. For today and the next two days, we're going to have broadcasts featuring Dr. Edward Miller from the Argentinian Revival, and he wrote the wonderful book called Thy God Reigneth. This is part one. Arise with fears, dismay. Those some may dwell where these above. My prayer, my aim is higher. Lord, lift me up and let me start by faith on air and I want to live above the world, even though Satan's down at me are heard, for faith has caught that joyful sound, the song of saints on higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand. Please, Lord, by faith on him, there's
Oh, listen to him. Listen to him. Can your faith go even a step farther? I want to scale the utmost heights. I want to scale the utmost heights and catch a gleam of that glory bright. But still I'll pray till heaven I love. Lord, it's beyond to Oh uh-huh.
this one alone you had to take our hands we'd have to walk up with you we don't know the way we don't know how we don't even know where and yet your word tells us and your saints have testified throughout its ages there is a place there is a place. There's a table and high where you can walk. It's not in the treachery but the miseries of life. Victims, ever victims. Instead of victors, instead of overcomers. We believe it. hearts are longing and especially in an hour such as this where the world is going just the opposite way so fast as if the rope broke and they're hurled hurtling down the slope into darkness forever and my heart says don't let me go down Pick me up. Pick me up in faith. Pick me up in hope. Pick me up in experience. Take me up till no longer the besetting frailties of my life overcome me and make me ashamed. So, so powerless. So empty. There must be a place. I want it. And I know I can't get there alone. I know only you, only you, can take me up there. Will you do it? A higher place than I've ever found. I've looked for it. I've longed for it. I haven't seen it. 
just for one minute. <clears throat> point you to one scripture over in Daniel 6. The word of a king. But a king who hadn't found the secrets of spiritual life. reigning through the powers of the flesh. A king is represented by King Saul. The king of the flesh. And in Daniel 6, we find Daniel in the lion's den. Didn't belong there. But flesh had put him there. The reigning of the flesh. This king was very unhappy. He didn't want Daniel in the lion's den. But there he is. So after spending a very miserable night, comes early in the morning. And we read the 20th verse. When he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. The king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, Servant of the living God, is thy God, whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee from the lions? And that's the word that we so often hear from those around us. Is thy God able to deliver? Is he a God of reality or a God of theory? Is he a God that can work in the crisis of life? Or is he a God that's only good for a Sunday sermon, a homily, an essay? Is he a God that can get down to the nitty-gritty of human needs and do something about it? Is he a God that's real? Or is he like the other idols that men worship? Is it just that we happen to be born in a Christian land instead of in a Hindu land, and so we have Christian God instead of an Hindu God? It's a reality. <clears throat> That's what the friends of Daniel, who are governed by the flesh and are reigning in the flesh, would say, is your God. And looking forward to this, I felt <clears throat> the Spirit desired me to do something I've never done before. I'm going back in my own life. I'm going down memory lane. Because I have been in more than one revival. And there's patterns. Most of you have not been in one. I've been in six or seven. And by that I mean real moves of God. Recently I ran across a statement 
Actually, my wife ran across it and read it to me. But it, it rang a bell. I've always sought to look at principles, not details. Details can change, but principles won't change. Even in the scripture, when you read the scripture, if you get lost else and try to apply them, you're applying something that's for thousands of years apart, but the principles are never changed. What are the principles of revival? But Charles G. Finney wrote these words, and it was his definition of a revival. And I thought it was excellent. And it was not the definition that most people would give. But these are his words. Revival is God bringing his people into obedience to Jesus Christ. That's tremendous. You didn't hear that. I'm going to say it again, but you still won't hear it. God bringing his people into obedience to Jesus Christ. But I want to point out, he did not say in obedience to the law. Paul said he was blameless to the law. He said, I count it but lost, but done. That's not it. That's the Pharisee. Not obedience to the law. Obedience to Christ. And there's a world of difference. One big world of difference. That's what revival is. And in my own experience of revivals, and when I use that word, I mean where God really has moved out. You see, revival doesn't mean an evangelistic service even if it's very powerful. Revival means bringing back life to those that once had it. It's a church word, not sinner word. Bringing his people back to obedience, but to his voice. One of the things that keeps us from being terribly, obe- uh, uh, terribly keeps us from being obedient is the fear of what people would say or think. Fear of man. But uh, I want you to see as I go through some of these histories that there's a pattern. There's a pattern. And one of those patterns is obedience. And you'll see that it's not an obedience such as you would think, not obedience to a law, but obedience to something the Spirit of Christ is saying for you to do at that moment. And when that's done, it seems to open up the windows into heaven. I'm going back, and I, I hope you'll excuse me for going to my own experience, but it does have to be the one I know best. Um, <clears throat> my earliest memories are of revival. In 1922, my father was, you'll already know I'm over 70. And when you're 70, you're allowed to go down memory lane, aren't you? My father was a Baptist minister, had been for many years, had pastored many, several churches and had built several churches and been successful in the Baptist ministry. And he heard about 
God moving in the realm of miracles. At that point of time, it didn't know much about the Holy Spirit as a baptism. This was before Pentecost existed in our term Pentecost, our denominational Pentecost. And you know, that couldn't be because any good Baptist knows that miracles ended a long time ago. So that, we know, couldn't be true. And so together with some of his Baptist friends and some other denominational friends, decided they'd have to go down there to where this great campaign was, where a woman was doing it of all things, Amy Semple McPherson, and expose this fraud and show it up for what it really was. They weren't going to allow that to turn the religious world into fractions and sections and tear it apart. So my father, Dr. Miller, together with Dr. Charles Price, together with Dr. McCrossan, together with Dr. Towner, there were 20 of them, in fact, converged upon this big tent. They went there before the service. They crawled underneath the platform because they knew that she must be electrifying people and giving them some kind of electric jolt and making them jump, make people think something had happened. So these dear August brethren crawled around under the platform. All they found was cobwebs and lots of dust. There wasn't any electric wires any place. They searched it out well. So then they went to the service that night and they couldn't believe what they saw. They saw it wasn't any fraud. They saw God do miracles. They saw the lame walk. They saw crippled arms stretch out. They saw blind see. They saw dozens of miracles. But it wasn't like our miracle services today. There was a presence that was there. They saw the people flocking to the altar, tears streaming, not standing up there saying a sinner's prayer, throwing themselves on the floor and screaming out, I'm a sinner, my God have mercy. And by the dozens and by the hundreds. And when she gave her appeal for sinners, Dr. Price, the eminent lawyer pastor of the most wealthy church in California in Lodi, stood to his feet as one of those candidates. Dr. Towner jerked on his coattail and said, Sit down, man. He's calling for sinners. Tears streaming down his face. He said, I know it. Leave me alone. They saw God. They came home changed man. They began to preach in that Baptist church the power of a living Christ. They began to preach the baptism in the Holy Spirit. God began to move. In 1924, he wanted to put on, by then the Baptist church had been filled with the Spirit. The basement of the Baptist church 
was filled with people seeking God, and they prayed. They used to say that revivals never started before midnight. And it wasn't a prayer, prayer meeting where you preacher gave a homily. It was people on their knees praying, and they're glowing, and crying out to God. It wasn't a sprinkling baptism. It was an immersion baptism. Most of them flat on their faces or their backs, hands straight up praising God, speaking in tongues for hours, usually till dawn. I've seen the Baptist floor covered with those slain under the Spirit. And they didn't get up in five minutes. In fact, we used to, it was a rule of thumb. I remember when I was five, we used to, we used to watch and count it. It wasn't the real power of God. It was only an, a, a sort of a me-tooism, you know, unless they were under the power for at least two hours with their hands straight up. Hold your hand up for two hours. You'll see why we said that. And we knew it was God. Then they decided it should go out, so they called. They are going to have uh, Amy McPherson come, and my father went down there to get her to come up and hold a meeting in that town of Ashland, Oregon. She was too busy. She was too locked up with appointments. She said, but I think there's a man that God's going to use that way. He never had. He said, his name is Dr. Charles Price. He's a pastor of the church in Lodi. Get him. Hmm. So he went looking for Dr. Charles Price. He couldn't find him in the city. Supposed to be in the city. In fact, <clears throat> let me digress a bit to tell you how he received his baptism. He was a very dignified Englishman. And no way was he going to make a sport of himself. No way was he going to yell out in tongues where everybody could. It was going to be a private matter. And he kept seeking, nothing happened. Finally, in desperation, he said, all right, God, this has got to end. I'm I don't care what you do. I, I, I'll, I'll be willing to make a noise. But uh, I've got to have this baptism. So I got down behind the piano on the platform, nicely hidden. And there he sought, and he just got really begin to touch the heavenly fires. And would you believe it, somehow they decided to change the platform, and four big men came, picked up the piano, and took it to the other side, and there he was. But it was too late. He had a glorious time. My father went searching for him and couldn't find him. At noon, he went to a restaurant, very crowded little place, sat down at a table, having lunch. A man came in, saw that there was one chair on that table that was not filled and the place was filled. Uh, would you mind if I... Occupy this chair. Uh, no, go ahead. Got his lunch, sat down. He said, uh, uh, my name is Charles Price. Your name is what? To my father. Uh, Dr. Charles Price. He said, man, I've been looking all over the city for you. The result was he came and had his first service in Ashland, Oregon, in a big armory. Then they had to move it to the Chautauqua. That's probably a name you don't even know. It's a big round building, 
where they had sh- any kind of a show that was going on. It was a little town, 4,000 people. There were 5,000 people in the Chautauqua. And then outside, we don't know how many. God moved. And again, there were those mighty miracles. And again, there was those streaming to the altar crying out for mercy. And again, there were prayer meetings that lasted all night long. For months, I don't remember ever going to sleep in my bed. But I do remember being packed home at dawn on the shoulders of my father. Night after night. One of the patterns is prayer. But prayer, as Paul said, in the spirit. Not just get down and saying prayers. Your prayers aren't that worth, they aren't worth that much. It's when he prays. He's given to us, isn't he, to see, because the Bible so plainly says, you don't know what to ask like boys you ought. We ought to know that, but somehow we skip that and think our prayers are worth something. Our prayers only take us into Phariseeism. And the prayers would last all night. And that went on for months. Oh, yes, there was some excitement, too, when we came to the Baptist church one morning and found guns looking at us through the window and ordering not one person step on this place. There were a couple of Baptist elders that were very unhappy with what God was doing. There always are some people, you know, that don't like it. And so at gunpoint, we had to vacate the building. So they found a little other place and began to meet there. And within two years, there were 34 new churches in the area, all of them moving the Spirit, and most of them still alive today. One of those places in 1926, after this move, the Spirit that rocked the nation. Well, I, I'm getting a little ahead. Let me go back a little bit more. In 1925, they went to another town called Albany. And there God moved so mightily in that town that for two years they couldn't have a dance and they had to close up their beer halls. There were no candidates. God took the city. And then they went to, <clears throat> my father went to Klamath Falls, a lumber town, a logger town, a very rough town, starting on the street corner, preaching, and within a year they had a church built with over 500 members. Miracles took place on the street corner. It doesn't have to be a cathedral, you know. There was something beyond miracles. There was a presence. There was a presence. Long before a sermon was terminated, the people were sitting weeping. The altars began to fill up before the invitation. And those that already prayed them had been prayed through into the place of the Spirit were down there with them, weeping with them, repenting with them, crying out with them. Oh, they had glorious hullabaloo times. It was wonderful. And they built that church, and the Holy Spirit moved into it. Miracles of every kind and shape and description. I've watched them time after time. 
and I remember it quite well. On Christmas 1926, my father got terribly inspired, something he read about the pyramids and something he saw in the scriptures, and he prognosticated in a marvelous sermon that Jesus Christ was coming back, the second coming was going to take place in May 1927. I'll never forget the sermon. He was alive. Many people were at the altar long before he finished. God was there that night. He said, the day of the hour knoweth no man, but the month and the year God's told me. In May 1927, he died. And three days before he died, Jesus was there in the room. He'd talk with him. He'd tell us, be quiet, don't you hear it? Oh, sing it again, sing it again. It's so beautiful. And the angel came for him. God kept his word. May 1927, came. Lingered three days and took him home. Just before he slid, slipped away, very quietly in a whisper, he began to sing. What was he singing? I don't close to listen. It wasn't a goodbye to us. We were forgotten. It was... My Jesus, I love thee. That was, I've loved thee in life, loved thee in death. I love thee as long as thou givest me breath. And sing while the death dew lies cold on my brow. If ever I loved you, my Jesus, it's now, it's gone. But he didn't leave the church. God was still there. Another man came. God moved gloriously. The Spirit of God stayed. This was in Klamath Falls. But then our home was broken up, and I was sent to live with my aunt and my uncle out on a farm. And they attended a nice church. They had been in this move of the Spirit in Albany. Terrible things had happened. The Baptist pastor, under whose direction this move had come, pressured by their hierarchy, had turned against it. And one morning stood up in his church and said, Every one of you that are planning to continue in this devilish move of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, he had done it. I want you out of my church this morning. Three-fourths of the congregation walked out. Twenty-five years later, that man died in the arms of another pastor, Dr. Kempton, crying out, My God, I'm going into hell. I'm going to hell. Dr. Kempton, oh, no, man. He said, Yes, I am. 
I'm going into outer darkness forever. He was gone. He turned back. When God moving, you've got to be careful what you're doing. When he's not there, you can get away with a lot. When he's there, you just walk carefully. You don't turn back. I gave you many such illustrations, but I won't now. And so there's a quiet time. God reached into my life different times, you know. Kids are and up one day and down the next, you know. But when I was 15, I began to get really concerned. I began to seek God, and lo and behold, he wasn't there. He hid himself from me. But in March of 1932, I met him. I was out plowing, actually, with a team of horses. I was singing a little chorus. Jesus never failed. Jesus never failed. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus never fails. I was singing it just to sing it. But while I was singing it, the Holy Spirit drew nigh and said, What are you saying? He doesn't fail, and he didn't. It began in the Baptist church way back there in Ashton when the Holy Spirit began. There was a song they used to sing. I didn't understand it because I was too young then. It was strange. The comforter has come. The comforter has come. We'll spread the tidings round wherever man is found. The comforter has come. And they would sit around in a prayer meeting and perhaps sing a little chorus. Like one of the patterns, let me just stop and mention this. One of the patterns is simplicity. Simplicity. Not complexity, not protocol, simplicity. And they would sit for hours with some little chorus. And this was one that was quite popular. The comforter has come. The comforter has come. Oh, spread the tidings round. Wherever man is found the comforter has come the comforter has come the comforter has come that holy ghost from heaven the father's promise him Spread the tidings round wherever he's come. Has come, oh, the comforter has come, not is coming, he'd already come. Has come the Holy Ghost from heaven, 
skin. Oh, spread the tidings round wherever man is found. The comforter has come. The long, long night is past. The morning breaks at last. And hush the dreadful sound and the fury of the blast. And over golden hills the day advances fast. The the song. That was the song. That was Jesus' favorite name for him, wasn't it? You see, if you're hungry, you don't need a healer. You need one that will break bread to you, don't you? If you're lean, you don't need a meal. The comfort you need is healing, isn't it? He didn't say how he'd comfort. He just said he's a comforter. And they found he could comfort in all ways. He was a comforter. And perhaps all night long they'd sing that little song. There was a simplicity. There was time to wait on God. Did you ever look at that scripture? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Now, most people think wait, you know, is just sitting there and just waiting on God. Well, if you're waiting on God that way, you don't need any strength. But if you go to a restaurant, you have a waiter. And the waiter's serving you, isn't he? And he gets tired serving all day long, doesn't he? They that wait on the Lord, they that serve him, they get renewed. Oh, many a time, for, for years... They go straight to work in the morning from church. Rush home, change their clothes, come to church all night again. But they would testify. They get sleepy sometimes, but they never got tired. It exchanged strengths. They that wait on him, they're serving him, just worshiping, just singing a song to him, just loving him, just blessing him. Letting him do his thing. Suddenly he'd come upon one. Suddenly he'd come upon another. He'd know the right timing. And he'd know how to bring them to the right time. I remember one. Tommy Underwood. 
I believe was his name. Mind you, I was only about six or seven. He just couldn't get filled with the baptism. And by then, baptism wasn't someone laying hands on you and commanding you to speak in tongues. It was an immersion. It was God. And we let God do it in his time. And sometimes that would be two years down the line of seeking and praying and fasting and crying and wondering, God, when are you going to come to me? He didn't come to Tommy. But he wanted him to come in a very quiet way. He didn't want to make a spectacle. But he never came. Finally, he said, God, I don't care how you come. I can't wait any longer. So he came to him. But he rolled him from wall to wall. He said, afterwards, I felt like a dish rag that had been wrung out and flung into a corner. But the Spirit of God came on that man. He became a wonderful minister. Many of them did. Many of those who were brought off the street corner in Klamath Falls became ministers. There was a band of young people, about a hundred strong, would go out all over the area and every night there wasn't a service. By then it reduced to about two empty nights a week. Except they weren't empty for them. They were out holding services and opening new places. Then as I said, then it, then it, it died down. Because the Spirit always moves in waves. Both in short waves like an ocean, also in tides. ebb and flow. Time went on. 1932, I was saved, and then I was here. I was filled with the Spirit. The same year, I was called to the ministry. By God speaking to me, and I want to pause here and say that I found in my life that God really speaking to you is rare. The scriptures are always there, but God really coming to you and speaking to you, that voice of God doesn't come very often. Don't let people kid you. The Lord said this and the Lord said that. That's, excuse my expression, that's hooey. That's for the birds. My God. His word's precious. But he did speak to me and he called me. I was out in a barn waiting for my horses to eat their noon meal. And I always had my Bible with me. I loved that word. I consumed it. Read it through at least once or twice a year. Always had it with me. Every time the horses would rest, I'd be reading it. Memorizing many portions of it. Then time went on and it was a low time. Even that church in Klamath Falls went into a very low time. They got another pastor in. The one that God was using so much made a mistake, went to Brazil as a missionary and God hadn't sent him. Tragedies came. I went to Bible school. knew I had to fulfill the ordinings of God. God wasn't in that Pentecostal Bible school. <clears throat> Became a college while I was there. But we found a little group of people that had not let go of the vision. Paul said, I've been, not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. 
just a little group of people. They were called by the name of the street they met on. There's a large house. Perhaps four or five families lived there. And called Hollister. And there that same spirit was. That same looking for that, for that presence to come. They'd worship and wait on God. The Pentecostal churches by then had become structured. That was in the early 40s. Protocol had been established. It hadn't got to the, the uh, hymn prayer sandwich, but it was getting there. But these little people, they had kept. And God gave us the privilege of finding them. And we met there. And it was, it was unique. It was wonderful. They were precious people. We were trying to get the mission field. My wife was trying her best to get filled with the Spirit. But in those days, he wasn't too handy. And she sought and prayed and wept and cried and sought and prayed and wept and cried. Nothing happened. And then we came to this place. She was doing her best. She was walking up and down, hands up, trying to praise the Lord, and stumbled over the rug and went flat down. A bit humiliating. But still he didn't come. But one morning, Elder Brooks came over, laid hands on his head, on her head, she gave one scream and every devil came out. And God came in. And the tongues rolled for hours. There was a difference in that place. But sometimes they would have a time when it was difficult. You know, the, the, the sirs would tie up. Just lock up. And there's an old gentleman there to he was a doc. He was a medical doc. I'm a, a dentist, actually, but retired. And when the service would lock up, do you know what he'd do? He'd get up. He'd walk all the way up front. Reverse to what I'm walking. He'd turn around and dance a little jig. No music. Just dance a little jig. And all heaven would open up. All heaven would come down. He had one little gift. But it worked. You see, it's that obedience to Jesus Christ that's revival. We miss it. We miss it. I've seen him dance his little jig. I've never seen it fail. Wouldn't do it often. Maybe once a month. But it was precious. They worked in God. They did what he told them. If he didn't tell them to, they wouldn't do anything. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel. We're a house church located in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our mailing address is Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Come visit us at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you.
Jesus. 